Good evening and welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and top instructors go to share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, Ben Hogan Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Two Wonder, the Salt Creek Golf Retreat, TaylorMade Golf, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, and Superspeed Golf. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me tonight here on Next on the Tee. I hope your week is off to a great start. I know mine is, and it's really thanks in large part to the great guests that I'm going to get to share with you tonight. My first guest is going to be PGA Tour legend Bobby Nichols. Now, Mr. Nichols won 15 times out on the PGA and Champions Tours, including the 1964 PGA Championship, so we'll talk about that win. We'll talk about the PGA's movement from August back to May. Want to get his opinion on that. Also want to talk about his experience playing in the Players' Championship, going back to when it was first added as an event back in the mid-1970s. So want to talk about the inception of that and what it was like. Want to talk about some of his master's memories, right? And he played in several of those events as well. So want to know what it was like being a part of those back in the, in the uh, 1970s as well. Plus a wonderful event that he hosts every year that raises money for abused and neglected children over there in Southwest Florida. If you, uh, if you all remember a couple of weeks ago, we heard about it uh, from Donnie Hammond, who goes over and plays in that event every year. So I want to talk about that with Mr. Nichols as well. So really looking forward to having him back as part of the show again tonight. He'll join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a visit from PGA professional Joe Connerton. Now, Joe is a Harvard grad, right? So I really want to understand, you know, what is, what is it like, A, to get accepted to go to Harvard, and then B, what's it like to be a Harvard grad? He is now a head golf professional at the Hartford Country Club, or golf club, I should say, up in Hartford, Connecticut. That is a beautiful-looking golf course designed by Donald Ross. It dates all the way back to 1896. So lessons from Joe for you. So really looking forward to having him as part of the show a little bit later on in this half hour. Following Joe, I'll get a visit from 1989 senior PGA champion Larry Mowry. Larry had a very interesting route to becoming a major champion. He was in over 100 victories. He's got over 100 victories out on mini tours, particularly those played down in Florida, but had a difficult time sort of breaking through and be in uh, playing regularly out on the PGA Tour. So I want to talk about that plus how his career really took off once he qualified for the senior tour. And as a guy who never won on the regular tour, he outdueled Arnold Palmer and Gary Player a couple of different times for wins out on the senior tour in the late 1980s. And once saying to his caddy, can you imagine that Arnold Palmer and Gary Player are putting out to clear the way for me to win this golf tournament? Amazing stories. Really looking forward to having Larry as part of the show. He'll join me about 40 minutes from now. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a return visit from Ben Hogan Golf CEO Scott White. The brand had a major announcement yesterday about a new product line that they've added, so obviously we'll talk about that. We'll talk about their equalizer wedges, which, oh, by the way, folks, are the best wedges I've ever hit. Love the black matte finish as well now, so uh, really looking forward to having Scott as part of the show. We'll talk about those things, see what else they might have in store for us for 2019. He'll join me at the top of the next hour. 
So, folks, a lot more great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. Again, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. But before we get started, I always like to remind you about my good friend Mitch Lawrence and his podcast called Talking Golf Getaways. He and his co-host Darren Bunch let you know about great places to stay, play, and even eat and drink while you're there. Again, their show is called Talking Golf Getaways. Now it's moved over to a new site, Golf Trip X, and that's a letter X, which stands for experts. So GolfTripX.com. Go there, check out their show, and learn about some of the hidden gems that we have around the country. His twin brother, Matthew, also fantastic. You guys know how much I dig Matthew, and his show is called Backspin Golf, which is back on the air now. So you can listen Sunday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time on WLXG ESPN Radio AM 1300 up in Lexington, Kentucky. You're going to love the show because Matthew's so much fun to listen to. He's got a lot of great guests, which includes Perry French, who will be joining me here on the show in a couple of weeks. Again, his show is called Backspin Golf. You can stream it by going online to WLXG.com or doing what I did, which is download the WLXG app. And folks, you know, we are sponsored here on Next on the Tee by the French Lake Resort. Let's hear a word from our good friend Steve Rondonaire about what they've got going on up there. Play the course's champions play at French Lake Resort. Laura Davies won the 2018 Senior LPGA title on our Pete Dye course. Colin Montgomery won the Senior PGA title here in 2015. For an experience drenched in history, play our Donald Ross course, where Walter Hagen won the 1924 PGA Championship. It's never too early to plan that next buddy trip to play legendary golf at French Lake Resort, the Midwest's premier golf destination. Yeah, folks, be sure to go online to FrenchLake.com to see for yourself what a beautiful place they have up there and to book your stay as well. I also want to tell you about our good friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. Looking forward to having Scott White as part of the show a little bit later on tonight. But, folks, if you haven't hit Ben Hogan iron since the 80s or the 90s, do yourself a favor and get a demo iron from either their Fort Worth PTX or Edge irons or go out on the range and compare it to whatever you have in your bag. All Ben Hogan irons and wedges are handcrafted one at a time in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. So no mass production, no shortcuts. Now you can order custom-made irons, wedges, and hybrids by going online to BenHoganGolf.com. And they're going to build those clubs to your specifications. And best of all, charge you a fraction of the typical retail price. Check out their complete line of forged irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, bags, and accessories online at BenHoganGolf.com. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to BobbyJones.com. They've got their spring collection out now. Looks absolutely fantastic. Plan ahead for spring and be among the first to sample their new happy hour collection. And I've got my eyes on some of their great new looking polos and sweaters. Fantastic looking stuff, folks. Check it out for yourself by going online to BobbyJones.com. All right, now back with me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is Bobby Nichols. Let me give you some details about Mr. Nichols' background. He's from Louisville, Kentucky, played his college golf at Texas A&M, where he won the Southwest Conference Individual Championship back in 1952. He was a Southwest Conference medalist in 1956 and team co-captain in 58. He joined the PGA Tour in 1916. He won 12 times out on the regular tour, including the 1964 PGA Championship. Added three more wins on the Champions Tour. In 2014, he was honored as a hometown champion by the city of Louisville when Valhalla hosted the PGA Championship that year. And I am both honored and privileged to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Mr. Nichols. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. 
So, Mr. Nichols, I had the pleasure of having Donnie Hammond on the show with me a couple of weeks ago, and he was raving about a charity event that you host every year. Talk about what that event is. Yeah, Donnie, Donnie came in. Donnie's been coming every year now to, to uh, help us out. And uh, the, the, the charity itself was started about 17 years ago. And this past year, we went over the $11 million mark in 17 wow. years. Now, this is amazing because it's strictly, I shouldn't say strictly, but it's, it's almost 98% of it is from the membership here at Fiddle Six Country Club. And that, that is absolutely amazing. We don't have a national sponsor or, or, uh, we have, of course, uh, we have a lot of people that play at the event that have companies and things outside to help us out and stuff like that. But most of our people here at Fiddlesticks support the tournament and it's just been phenomenal. I'm, I've been amazed each and every year. It's gone over a million dollars and I can't say enough of good things about it. And guys like Donnie Hammond and all our, Pros that come and play here were very special. And Mr. Nichols, talk about who the event benefits. Talk about the charity that you guys are attached to. Okay, all this money that we raise stays right here in Southwest Florida, and it benefits the abused and neglected kids right here in Southwest Florida. We've each and every year we go over thousands of three or four thousand kids that we uh, take care of through. Uh, but just about everything and, and food and, and everything. We we had the blessings in the backpack that we sponsor. And, of course, the kids itself. It's just been amazing. It has done a lot of good. Of course, we continue to do this because you'd be surprised. And a lot of people don't know that there's a lot of people, a lot of kids, not only in southwest Florida, but everywhere that, that are go, go to school hungry. And we try to do our best to make their life a little better. Wow. God bless you. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. It's been phenomenal that uh, people have been this generous and given monies, but they've, each, they've done it each and every year. Like I say, this was a 17th year, and uh, this is how come we've been able to go over the $11 million mark. Mr. Nichols, I want to switch gears a little bit, and uh, here we are on the heels of another great players' championship tournament. And as I was looking back through the tournament's history, and you played in it during the mid-1970s when the tournament was really first just getting created and coming out on the tour, being an event on the tour. You were there in 75 when it was played at Colonial Country Club, and in 77 when it was uh, first played at TPC Sawgrass. So what do you remember about when that tournament first came on tour? Well, it was it was quite a nice, good prize money uh, even back then. And uh, you know, play, Sawgrass was a championship golf course too, so it was uh, it was pretty special. And you know, back then we we uh, we didn't have all this many tournaments to play in. So whenever they added a new one, it was really special. And of course, the TPC course there in Jacksonville was really well. It's history what it is today. It's it's amazing. And Mr. Nichols, since it's a tournament put on by the players for the players, back uh, then, was there ever any conversation about making it into a major? That seems to be the thing every year. Boy, should it become well, a, the fifth major out on tour? Did you guys ever talk about that? Well, you know, it's always comes up, but uh, it has to. Uh, you have to let the writers or the people uh, it, it through uh, 
longevity and years, it build it has to build up the uh, where the where the other top four are today uh, measures. I, eventually, uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to say one way or another. I, it's it's definitely been mentioned in, in certainly the golf course and the venue that they have. It, it's definitely a major event. Of course, the money this year won over two million, which is astronomical. I could not believe that, but that's <laughs> it went over two million this year, and I mean it's incredible. The guys that play, uh, the money that uh, they have to to play for. So, uh, with that going on and the uh, golf course itself, and it, every year it seems to it's pretty dy- dynamic the way it, it finishes up. There's always a a challenge. For for a winner to come through because those last those last few holes they're pretty uh, pretty demanding. Speaking of which, when, when the first time you went out to TPC Sawgrass and you you saw the island green there on 17, was that something completely new, different, foreign for what you'd ever seen or been able to play before? Were there other island greens out there? Uh, I think uh, maybe in uh, Hilton Head. Where Pete Dye built a golf course, I think he had a almost, a, if not a not in green, but uh, he kind of got things rolling with uh, Hilton Head. So uh, from there on, it it uh, caught on, and he uh, has done quite a quite a bit. It's it's it's, it's really something. The way it's of course the golf the hole itself is so demanding, not only because of the of what it looks like, it's the weather. But fortunately, this year it wasn't too bad, the wind-wise. Of course, in Jacksonville, you almost get you get some high winds, and it is it really makes it even more demanding. So it's really fun to watch. <laughs> so it's not much fun to play, but it's fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Nichols, we are a few weeks away now from this year's Masters tournament. You finished second. Uh-huh. In 1967, there you actually held the lead after three rounds with Julius Burroughs and and Bert Yancey, and then right. gave, you were actually paired with Gabe Brewer in the final round, who would ultimately come back from two strokes down to to edge out for the win there. But what do you remember about the '67 Masters? Well, I played with Gabe the final round, and I and I figured if I could shoot 70, I'd have a good chance to win, and that's exactly what I shot. But Gabe, I had a two shot lead over Gabe Brewer. We were playing together. And he shot a 67, which was phenomenal back then with the golf equipment we had and so forth. Anyhow, he he didn't, I didn't lose it. He he actually gave one the tournament. Actually, a year before that, he had a, a very good chance to win. He three-putted the last so, and then he lost in the playoff to uh, Jack because uh, the three, Tommy Jacobs and Gay and Jack Nicholas played off for the, 66 Masters and Jack won on the playoff. But uh, I believe if uh, uh, if he had won that year, he wouldn't have played so well in '67. But anyway, he's <laughs> got to give him credit. He played he played one heck of a round. Did he talk about that '66 final and and uh, you know losing it on 18 there and that, like you say ended up in a playoff with with Mr. Nicholas? But did he talk to you at all about making sure that he didn't allow that to happen again in '67? Well, no, I don't think it entered his mind, or he didn't want it to enter his mind because it wasn't uh, good to uh, keep something like that around. He he evidently uh, would never forgot, but he uh, 
it didn't bother his game because he he played off the well the year following. And Mr. Nichols, that 67 Masters was Ben Hogan's last Masters tournament, and I know you and Mr. Hogan were close. Did you know that was going to be his last Masters tournament? No, not at all. In fact, uh, I had played with him in the final round of the PGA in Columbus, Ohio, in 64. And then uh, he was uh, played with him uh, later on that year at the World Open at Oakland Hills, which was called the World Open then, and I was left fortunate to win that. And I played with him in the final round also. And it's kind of funny that uh, when we were checking out of the hotel, we had to be staying at the same hotel at uh, in Birmingham, Michigan, at the Radisson Hotel. Anyway, we uh, I go downstairs Monday morning to check out, and here he is at the checkout counter. He gets finished. He turns around. He looks at me, and he says, you ought to pay me to play with you. Oh, what do you say to the best player in the world? Certainly at that time. That's <laughs> it. Well, Mr. Hogan, anything I guess, anything I, I don't know what I can give it to do. <laughs> but anyways, he's, he, he was, uh, it was kind of special. It was fun to play with. He was, you know, he's a type of guy when he, when he get ready to hit a shot, you just knew he was going to hit it straight the way he'd set up and the way he looked. It was just, uh, he was just different in a lot of ways, but really an honor to play with him. Talk about Mr. Hogan and his personality. I mean, we've heard stories from Mr. Palmer over the years who had sort of a not-so-great relationship with Mr. Hogan. What was he like? I'll tell you what What really, uh, I guess, kind of the newspaper got a hold of it. It was in 67 when we had a Ryder Cup. He was our captain, and uh, we, we were at Houston, and this is a practice round on a day before the event started, and uh, Arnold was the only golfer in those days had a, had a plane of any kind, and so his jet, he comes flying over, and he kind of gave waved with his wings, kind of, <laughs> it was kind of a showboat type of whatever. Anyways, everybody looked up and saw him, and of course, Mr. Hogan saw him, and everybody else was down on the, on the ground practicing, getting ready for the match play and, and the turn itself. So anyways, the next day, they have the pairings, and, and they had a list. And actually, they get they they had put down the pairings that evening. Well, Mr. Palmer's name wasn't on it. He didn't, he didn't let it. He, in other words, I, we don't know to, even to today whether he did that on, uh, for, the, for what he showboat with his plane, or if it was because that's just the way he wanted it to be. But we feel like that Mr. Palmer, you wouldn't put him down on anything if it was a match play or anything else. So when he didn't play the first day, everybody said the reason for it was, of course, the newspaper got a hold of it. Anyway, that newspaper did ask him, Mr. Hogan, what I heard, why he didn't play the first round. And Mr. Hogan said, "Because I said so." I mean, he didn't he didn't elaborate elaborate on it or anything like that, because they were trying to get a story out of it or whatever. <laughs> but the story, everybody that played there thinks that's what happened, and that kind of, you know, Arnold being who he was back then, he he was winning everything, just about. And so uh, it to uh, to not have him to play the first day it would be like taking Tiger and, and put him on the sidelines for the first day. 
you just wouldn't do it. I mean, be, not if you're a captain of it and so forth. I want to take you back to that 64 PGA Championship. It, it was played at Columbus Country Club in Columbus, Ohio. Jack Nicklaus's sort of backyard, if you will. And you still right. him out to a, a 64 in the first round. And actually, at that time, was you were the first person ever to shoot a 64 in the PGA Championship. So what what got you off to such a hot start? What allowed you, what allowed you to shoot that 64? I'm not sure because I I, I wasn't playing. All. I didn't think well, coming into the tournament, but I didn't feel like I was playing all that good. But you know, at some days, anybody that plays a tour or plays professionally realizes that you have days where you just feel like everything goes. That's that's every time you hit a putt, it was hunting for the hole, and that was kind of like was that day I putted well, but I hit a lot of good shots. But of course. When you start putting well, your your, your other game kind of goes along with it and gets better. So anytime you you putt well, your other game is going to be better normally, and the combination of the two would uh, get you uh, awful little scores. And Mr. Nichols, you you had a one-stroke lead going into the final round over Arnold Palmer, and as you mentioned a moment ago, sixty-four. That was a prime of his career. You also had yeah. Nicholas and, and Hogan that were both right. tied for fifth right behind you. So what was it like trying to win your first major where you've got Palmer, Nicholas, and Hogan chasing you down? Well, it's uh, you, you you just try your best. You try to concentrate as much as you possibly can, but you, you always know where that the, those premier players were. They were right behind you, and you tried everything you could within reason to try to just keep control of your body or your thinking, your so swaying and so forth. And you try to keep that uh, out of your mind, but it's difficult. But it, it comes with experience, more or less. And uh, But, you know, kids nowadays, I, they come out there on the tour. They, they're not like we were because we didn't have anything else to play in until we got on the regular tour. But uh, kids today... They're veterans when they hit the tour, just about, because they've got many tours they've played in, and then you got the web.com tour to play in, and you got all kinds of competition prior to going out on the regular tour. And this has been a tremendous help to the kids. You, you can see all the good players today, and they're young, and they're very capable of, of winning, and not every tournament has at least... 10 to 15 young players, very, very, at the very top, they're capable of, of winning, and uh, it happens every week. So uh, it's been, that's what has really improved the tour, is the uh, different uh, tournaments they've been able to play in before they get, even get on a regular tour. Mr. Nichols, I want to switch gears a little bit. And I, and I read a comparison that said, you were John Daly long back in the day. So I was curious, when when you were out there playing on tour back in the 60s and 70s, how far were you hitting it, you know, based on, you know, we, you talked earlier about the equipment that you had to use back then compared to what we have now, but how far were you hitting it off the tee back then? Oh, I think, uh, best I can tell, one year, Jack, he would more or less lead the, the tour back in the early 60s, and I think he was about 274, but sometimes they pick holes where Guys wouldn't hit a driver. They'd lay up with a 
with a three wood or something or whatever. But anyways, he he would he would be the uh, most of the time be the I think uh, the the leader the leader overall. I would I remember I would uh, I was like two seventy one a couple of times. And that's about I can remember that. But uh, you know you just could uh, two eighty if anybody hit it over two eighty they were uh, well I don't know the cases Jack could. Uh, in fact, he could hit it 300 yards sometimes, but not very often with the equipment there was. They would, the day the kids today just about they could hit irons that far. <laughs> just <laughs> you know, it's it's just amazing how far they could hit it. So Nichols, you yeah. were out there on the, the Champions Tour back in you know when it was in its early days, you know, starting right. in the in the mid 80s is when you went out onto the onto the Senior Tour. What was it like when I look back and look at the names of the great players that you played with in the 60s? Uh-huh. They were uh-huh. the same guys you were playing with and against in the 80s. Was it like picking up right. your career and fast forwarding it 20 years and then putting oh, you back down? I was think, uh, you know, I, I think about that a lot back uh, back then. We got to play with the top players in the world, and that 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 was really special. I mean, I could play, I could play with Hogan, Snead. But then you played with Demerit, you played with the, the Jackie Burke and guys that uh, that you know that you admired growing up, watching, so forth. And then you get to play with them and stuff. It was really kind of special tour when it first started. Tommy Bolt and uh, you know it just goes Art Wall. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. Roberto, Davis, Enzo, those players, everybody. It was just. Uh, Julius Morris. I mean, those guys. I could just go on and on and on. The guys that we played with back then that was really special. They were the I mean, people that I really looked up to, and, and everybody that played the game looked up to them back in those days. Mr. Nichols, one more before I let you go, and uh, a little bit later on tonight, I'm going to have Larry Mowry as part of the show. So I know that uh, you yeah. had some opportunities to play with him on the regular tour in the seventies and, oh, and yeah. obviously on the senior tour in the eighties. What do you remember about Larry? Larry, when he came out, he, he won almost every week on the, on the, uh, mini tours. He was amazing. How many events he won there. I don't know. It was a huge number. I know that. And, and then when he came out, he, he could play. He was a good player. He was getting, he get frustrated. With his putting at times, but uh, Larry was a good player for a long time, and uh, he, uh, I think, he struggled with his with his back some. And but like most everybody does, sometimes or another, your back either gives you a little problems or some kind of ailments and so forth. But uh, <laughs> right, it's right because uh, it just uh, it's, you know this. Uh, some people stay together longer than others. Their body does, so uh, it 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 takes its toll uh, on I mean, you, because of the twisting and turning that you do and the balls you hit. Well, look at the best player in the world today, Tiger. He's fighting. He's fighting to stay healthy, and so it 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 it, it trickles down to to a lot of a lot of good players. It's tough to, tough well, to stay healthy. Well, Mr. Nichols, it is always an incredible honor for me to get to spend some time with you. I hope you'll continue to Thanks. come back and be a part of the show. 
I always enjoy listening to just your stories and the things that uh, <laughs> happened to you along the way. You're a fantastic okay. storyteller. I, I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Chris. Anytime. Thank you. All right, Mr. Nichols. Take care. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up again soon. Sure thing. Take care. You too. That is the great Bobby Nichols. Again, 1964 PGA Championship winner. You look at that 1967 Masters and uh, it came a stroke shy. But, uh, you know, a great event there. Held off great players to win that 64 PGA Championship and then had a had a nice run when the Senior Tour came about and got three more victories there as well. So always enjoy getting to spend some time with Mr. Nichols. It's always an honor. He's always got some great stories to share. And look forward to catching up with him again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Joe Connerton, I want to remind you about our friends over at Super Speed Golf. Now used by over half the tour players around the world, Super Speed Golf is the fastest and most effective way to increase your swing speed. Three eight-minute training sessions are all you need to see a 5% increase in that swing speed, and they've got sets for golfers of all ages and over one year of included video instruction as well. So Super Speed offers a complete solution to help you start bombing it off the tee. Visit them online at superspeedgolf.com to pick up your set today. And folks, well, TaylorMade has done it again. The all-new TaylorMade M5 and M6 drivers are now available, and what a story. They both feature speed-injected twist space created through a revolutionary manufacturing process where every single head, and I do mean, yes, every single head is injected and calibrated to the threshold of the legal limit. Basically, every head now is tour spicy. You get speed for all of us. Now available by going online to tailormadegolf.com or go see our friends over at the PGH Superstore as well. And as I say that, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now joining me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is PGA professional Joe Connerton. Let me give you a little background on Joe. He earned his bachelor's degree at Harvard University. He has been a PGA professional at the Harvard Golf Club since 2009. He's been recognized by the Hartford Business Journal as one of the top 40 under 40 professionals in that area. He has also served as president of the Connecticut PGA Golf Foundation. He was awarded the Connecticut PGA Bill Straussberg Award, which is given annually to the person who has outstanding involvement in charitable and community activities. He's also won the Connecticut PGA Horton Smith Award for outstanding and continuing contributions to PGA education. And I'm very honored he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Joe. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello, Chris. How are you, sir? I'm very well, Joe. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Joe, I always like to start out with any new guest by learning how they got started in the game of golf. Who was the first person to put a golf club in your hands? That's a great question. And uh, my father was the first person uh, to put a golf club in my hand. Uh, and then my mom has me a nine-hole executive golf course called the Birches as a babysitter. And I was lucky enough to be dropped off there quite often. And she knew I was in a safe place for a couple of hours per day. And uh, it definitely got me on the path to becoming a PGA professional. So to that end, Joe, at what point did you realize that uh, teaching the game of golf and being a P uh, PGA professional was really what you had a passion for and it's what you wanted to do? 
You know, I, I turned professional when I was 19. Um, I was working at a semi-private club in New Jersey uh, where I grew up. And, you know, it just felt like this was the right place for me to be. And I was lucky enough to, to work there for a couple of years and then received the opportunity to go work at the country club in Brookline, Massachusetts, under the golf professional who's there, still there, Brendan Walsh, uh, really set me on a path for success and took me under his wing and showed me the ropes, uh, showed me how to be the best DJ professional I could be. And uh, it was at that time that I ended up going to, as well, uh, to get my bachelor's degree and uh, started out of a place called Mass Bay Community College to get my associate's degree and then on to, uh, to Harvard. Uh, to get my bachelor's. I was uh, went to school at night for six years while working at the country club. Uh, it was pretty great to for a kid from New Jersey to be at the country club during the day and to be at Harvard at night. It was uh, <laughs> special, to say the least. Yeah, I got to believe so. I mean, my goodness, you're talking about two of the most elite places, you know, probably on the planet. What was it like going to work there at Brookline and then going to Harvard at night? It was it was it was surreal. It was absolutely surreal. Um, you know, I grew up in off of uh, for those in the Jersey New York area, exit two on the turnpike, and uh, raised predominantly by my mother from age ten on, and uh, really didn't know what the world had to offer. And just a an amazing opportunity for me to go work at the country club was was awesome in itself. And after being there for a couple of months, the golf professional said, you know, for the job that, that you want, you, you need to go to school. And a lot of kids from where I grew up went to college, but it wasn't a guarantee. And uh, so blessed to, to get my associates in, in two years' time and then to go to Harvard for the final four years uh, was, was pretty special. And the last year I went to school full-time. So that's four classes in the fall and in the spring and two in the summer. And I uh, was able to graduate in the summer uh, or June of 08. Okay, that, um, you know, just to be able to be at both of those places, to your point, some of the most special places in the world was uh, it's an absolute honor. It really was. I'm very lucky. And Joe, when you were out at Brookline Country Club, did you realize, you know, how historic that golf course is and, people that walked there and played there and, and what it meant and still means to the game of golf. You know, it's funny when, when I first got a call from Brendan Walsh, I was 20 years old and he goes, hi, um, he called me on my cell phone. And I didn't know he was calling. I didn't know that this was going to be a, a life changing phone call to say the least. And he goes, hi, I'm Brendan Walsh calling from the country club. How are you? Just like I was talking to any other first in the world, and um, once he said, and wants me to come up and take a look, and, uh, you know, I started in the outside operations, and it takes a little while to get it. You know, I wasn't in that world uh, in terms of being around a lot of the elite facilities, uh, but once you're there, I mean, you're just fully immersed in the in the culture and the, the history and the nostalgia. Uh, I lived in the locker room, uh, so on the top floor of the locker room, they had a little a little mess there for some of the interns. So we'd walk around the locker room at night, see all the great pictures and all the history of Francis Mamet, whether 1913 U.S. Open, all of the great events that they had at the club. You could really soak it in when you literally were there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It was uh, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, so you lived there. That sort of sounds like the amateurs going to Augusta National being up there in the crow's nest. 
So you actually got to live there on property? Yeah, so I worked there for seven years, and I lived there for the first five. Um, so they wow. had four of us living, living up in the, uh, right above the men's locker room, and, you know, it was amazing. You'd wake up and go to work from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., and then you'd go play golf till dark, and then go back up and hang out and talk about golf. I mean, you were just around golf 24 hours a day. You know, all very young, aspiring golf professionals, all they were trying to do the same thing, and that's just to get better and professional, um, you know, as soon as they could. And Brendan is the golfer there and has mentored so many of us to what we call getting across the finish line to becoming head professionals. Um, you know, he just uh, he started his 21st year, so 2018 here, he was celebrating his 20th year anniversary. And we went back and surprised him, all of us, I used to work for him that are now had professionals came back one day last August and surprised him and had a, a little tournament with the members there. And there must have been 30 of us there. So he's placed a lot of people in a, in a very short time. The tree, uh, you know, that we have is, 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 is pretty immense. So I got to ask you, what, what are some of the legendary stories that, whether it was Brendan or other people talk to you about what has, what's gone on there? what they've seen and uh, some of the sort of the legends that uh, that have come and gone through that uh, hallowed ground. Well, I mean, I guess I'm sure the obvious side of the U.S. Open, right? I mean, they've all been absolutely special, with it, whether it's Seth Brumet or, you know, Curtis Strange. Um, we all, they also hosted the 99 Ryder Cup, which, as we all know, was just a magical, a magical weekend. Um, and then they just most recently had the 2013 U.S. Amateur. Uh, and are slated to host the 2022 U.S. Open. So uh, the stories keep coming. Uh, and but you just look around the property, as we call it, from whether it's the men's locker room to the main clubhouse, and story tells itself. You just walk through and see all the great memorabilia that they have. It's uh, it's it's quite a special special place, and it's actually 27 holes, which I'm not sure if everyone knows. And the championship golf course, as we see in the Ryder Cup and in the USAM um, is actually a composite golf course. So they take 15 holes from the quote-unquote main course, and or sorry, 14 holes from the main course and four holes from the nine-hole facility, which which we call the Primrose. And that's what creates the championship golf course for those for those events. So why the hybrid? Why, why, why not go with the traditional 18? What is it about the other four from the nine-hole that make that elevate them into, you know, when you're holding a major there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the, the four holes that they take from the primrose and put to the main golf course certainly elevate the, the difficulty and it gets probably to the length that they they need for today's game. Uh, even in 99, um, they use the same composite golf course, but they've made changes since 99 as well. Uh, in preparation for the USAM, and um, I'm guessing that there may be some uh, in preparation for 2022 as well. But it's it's probably four or five shots harder. Just adding those four different holes does make a significant difference in terms of uh, daily daily play. So, Joe, now you're the head golf professional at Hartford Golf Club, which, oh, by the way, is is another historic golf course in this country. You go, it goes all the way back. To 1896, which is a combination Donald Ross and Devereaux Emmerich designed. Talk about your golf course now. 
it's a beautiful place. I'm entering my 11th year there. Uh, we have just over a thousand members, uh, 27 as well. And, uh, that was, you know, one of the main reasons why I, why I went for this opportunity is that characteristically it's very similar to the country club and the family dynamic, uh, 27 holes, you know, longstanding history and, uh, the golf course, we just redid the bunkers in 2017 with architect Bruce Hefner and, uh, did a, a large tea project as well at that same time. So golf course is in great shape. Uh, we hosted the 1996 mid amateur, um, and most recently the 2008 us junior girl. So a wonderful place. And, um, just blessed to be there. I live right here in town in West Hartford, Connecticut. So we're just getting ready for 2019. Uh, the golf shop opens uh, this day, so we're uncovering boxes and getting ready for the for the Northeast summer. Joe, I want to talk a little bit about uh, you as a teacher and some of the programs that you've got going on up there, particularly for your junior golfers. What are you doing to help keep junior golfers engaged in the game and making it a, a game that they're going to play for a lifetime? It's a great question, and it's um, I, it's funny you asked that question. We actually had a meeting this morning with our team, and um, you know we're going through revamping our program and using Operation Thirty Six. Have you heard of this, Chris? Operation Thirty Six. I have not. So Operation Thirty Six is a premise that um, from different yardages for nine holes that you try to shoot a score of thirty six. So it's a progressive formula where even from ages very young, let's say between ages four to six, uh, you can go out there and from 25 yards, you're trying to shoot a score of 36 for nine holes. Once you do that from 25 yards, you move it back to 50 and then from 50 to 75. So you progressively get it go harder as you can complete each level. And it creates a nice way for um, a young male or young female to, to learn the game, uh, understand how they get the ball in the hole, and, you know, but also a very attainable goal. So as, as they move through the program, uh, they can get all the way up to the point where they can get all the way to the, the whether it's the men's or women's tees, but it's a wonderful way to introduce them to the game. Super fun, and we're looking forward to, uh, to bringing that to Hartford Golf Club this year. Uh, we're going to unveil that program uh, early April and carry it through all the way through the winter season as well uh, as we have an indoor uh studio at the club, which has just been a home run, and you'll probably see a lot of clubs going that way where they want to be able to, you know, make some significant improvements through their game, not only in the summer, but also in the uh, in the offseason. Joe, just a couple more before I let you go, and uh, staying along the same lines as some playing lessons, I saw a slide that you put out on social media showing how close the top touring pros hit their shots from 150 yards out, and on average, they hit it about 21 feet from the pin. For players like me, who typically shoot in the 80s, we put it about 42 feet, and it gets progressively further out for those of us that uh, shoot in the 90s and, and over 100. But I've yeah. started telling myself that I'm not good enough to try to you know, fly the ball at the pin. I'm sort of now aiming for the middle of the green. So if I miss hit it, maybe I hit it fat or I hit it thin. I'll be a little long, a little short, maybe a little left, a little right whatever you know the margin of error is is that a good approach or is that too negative how do you how do you teach your players to go at the green from what i have found chris i'll be honest it's, it's been a rather uh, epiphany for a lot of players that we work with now is truly knowing how far your clubs go on average and not 
not kind of knowing and not using, you know, that the shot you hit three years ago, but, uh, you know, using something like a TrackMan, which we have, which is a loss monitor that evaluates how far the ball goes, truly getting a sense on how far every single club goes in the air. I'm not really terribly worried about what happens once it lands on the ground, but I think if a player knows on average how far every club goes and they trust that number, they will have much higher success because they'll start pulling the, the right club. And as you might imagine, unfortunately, most players think they hit it a little farther than they actually do. Um, so you always have to tread <laughs> those waters a little bit lightly when you tell Mr. Jones, you know, hitting their seven iron 12 yards shorter than they think. But that's because most people think in, in terms of total yardage. And if you listen to tour players, you know, it's great when I, I love when the PGA Tour can catch a, an interaction between a tour player and a daddy and they're talking about number. They're always talking about carry. They're always talking about what is it going to take me to land on my spot? And then they let the ground do the work from there. Um, so if you can start to understand, if I were to ask you, you know, how far does your eight iron go in the air? Do you know that answer? I would say for me, it's 145. Okay. And I think that's pretty, that's in the air. Yeah, that's in the air. And I'll typically get about yeah. five yards a roll. Yeah. So what I try to get most of our students to understand is that if it's one fifth to the center of the green, it, uh, and using simple math, it's 140 to the front and 160 to the back. And I just want you to get whatever club it takes to ensure that we land it on the front portion of that green, even if you calculate for a little bit of a miss. So under that kind of premise, eight iron would probably be a pretty good club, assuming there's no elevation change or, or wind or poor lie. But I think if you can start figuring out how far every single club goes in your bag, consistently to a certain yardage, that in itself will will take a few shots off and you won't leave it as short or, or dump it in the bunker as, as we see a lot of amateurs do. Joe, before we let you go, let our listeners know, how can they follow you and stay up to date with all the things you're doing, whether they're following you online or they're doing it on social media? Oh, you're great to, you're great to ask. But, uh, yeah, we're on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and, and Instagram at Joseph Connerton uh, on all three of those platforms. And, Social is the way to go. There's no doubt that there's a lot of great people in the world that are doing some really cool things each and every day, and uh, feel free to follow them, and that's really why I got on there. I felt like we at the, at the Harper Golf Club were doing a lot of cool things that we just want to share with everyone, so I appreciate it, and that's kind of how you and I met. I appreciate you taking the time tonight. It's been, it's been great to be on the show. I appreciate your time, Joe, and it, uh, it has been great having you as part of the show tonight. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon. A lot more playing lessons. you got a lot more great stuff that you're posting out on social media that I'd love to get to. So I hope you'll come back and do it again real soon. Love to, Chris. Thanks so much. Take care, Joe. All the best to you and your family. That is Joe Connerton, and he is uh, out at Hartford Golf Club up in Hartford, Connecticut, doing some great things there. I highly encourage you follow him on social media. Check out his Facebook page. Check him out on Twitter. Like I say, he's posted a lot of really cool things to understand about your golf swing, ball position, how to align yourself, use your feet, and use the ground to gain more uh, strength and energy through your golf swing. He does a lot of really good stuff, posts a lot of really cool things. So I highly encourage you to check him out, and I look forward to having him back on the show again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Larry Mowry, I want to you know let you know our folk, our friends at Two Under, absolutely spectacular. This segment of the show is sponsored by them, and we can't thank them enough for being a part of the show now. 
I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Two Under Men's Performance Briefs, the unofficial underwear of the PGA Tour. Worn by PGA Tour players like Ricky Fowler, David Toms, Jerry Kelly, William McGirt, Jason Kokrak, and Matt Everett, to name just a few. Your buddies are going to think you're a stud if they're even seeing you in your underwear, but that's another story. And your girlfriend and her wife is going to love the side effects, a visibly enhanced profile. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management. It separates a man's most valuable assets from bodily contact to reduce unwanted skin-on-skin contact, providing less chafing, more control, and an altogether more luxurious feel. Start every round two under by wearing the coolest performance briefs on the market. Use code ONTHET20 to save 20% off your order at twounder.com. And that's the number two, UNDR.com. All right, now joining me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is Larry Mowry. Let me give you some background on Larry. He's from San Diego, California, turned pro back in 1959. He won the 1968 Rebel Yell Open at Holston Hills Country Club up in Knoxville, Tennessee. He also won the 69 Magnolia Classic. He also won the Florida Open twice in 1979 and 83, plus the 79 Colorado Open. Five times out on the Champions Tour, including the 1989 Senior PGA Championship. He won that tournament by one stroke over Miller Barber and Al Guyberger. On the Champions Tour, Larry had, uh, on top of those five wins, seven runner-up finishes, five third-place finishes, 52 top 10s, and 104 top 25s. And I'm very honored he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Larry. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much, Chris. What a great introduction. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. So, Larry, (laughs) I want to start our time tonight by going back to the mid-70s to the early 1980s. And I read that you used to be called the king of the mini tours because you won 106 times out on the mini tour events. So what was life like for you during that time, going from mini tour event to mini tour event and winning all of those tournaments? Uh, you know, a lot of the tournaments were right there in in Orlando, and, and uh, an awful lot of uh, tremendous amount of, of tour players that went on to uh, win tournaments on the tour and what have you uh, all played in that. That was back in the days when there really uh, there was no Hogan Tour or any uh, uh, Web dot com or any. They, I think they had to go to uh, Asia to go play. That was about it. So uh, there was a heavy competition down there. I played really well. I, I uh, uh, 1979 was a, an especially good year for me. I, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I quit drinking during that uh, during that year, and I, I came on and in, uh, in May, and I, and I, when I won the Florida Open, that really kind of uh, set a year off. That I won 23 times after that. Uh, uh, wow. I, I would travel all over the place. The the uh, uh, mini tour things kind of lasted up until uh, well, it would get close to the summer, and then during the summer, I'd go to Colorado and other places and and play in tournaments. And uh, back then, the Colorado Open, of that, in fact, that particular year, nineteen seventy nine. Uh, that uh, was a year that, uh, gee, they had, uh, I, th- I think Mark O'Meara came in second. I'm not sure, but he was playing with me in the last round. He was the uh, U.S. Amateur, amateur champion, Mark O'Meara, and he was really good. I kind of knew that he was going to do it. And they had Guy Berger and 
Dave Stockton, I think, just won the Colonial, and he was up there playing in that tournament. So we, uh, Fred Couples were, was there, uh, amateur. Uh, I mean, it was really a, an amazing tournament. And 12000 first money, by the way. I mean, that's just how, I don't know why they all showed up. <laughs> 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 you mentioned all of those names, Larry. And who who are the guys when you were out there playing in the mini tour around Orlando and around the state of Florida? Who are some of the guys that you played against there that you would ultimately face on the PGA and then later on the senior tour? Well, most see, I was basically when I was playing in those, I was pretty much done with playing on on the regular tour. So they kind of would. You know, like Larry Rinker and uh, Azinger and and uh, all those players uh, ended up going. Well, Faraday was even on that tour. Uh, I mean, I could go down. A, it's a long list of players that uh, that went on to seek fame out there. Uh, Nick Nick Price didn't play there, but he, he was taking lessons from David Ledbetter, who had just started teaching at that point down at uh, the Greenleaf Club. Uh, you know, over towards Tampa. And uh, so, I mean, it was quite a spot. Uh, there, it was a, it was a hub during that time for, for good players. Stadler played in that. They, they, there's so many of them that played; it's hard to even uh, count them. So they was, they went on, and I was basically like 42 years old. So what I had to wait until uh, I was, uh, you know, I saw the senior tour coming up, and and so I had to wait until I was 50 to get in on that deal. Larry, I, I want to go back to when you were a kid for a moment, because I read that World Golf Hall of Famer Lloyd Mangrum took a shine to you when you were a kid out in San Diego. What was your relationship like with him? I I played a few times with him, and, and they had these little tournaments back in uh, when I lived in San Diego. That was uh, uh, back at a time when uh, the L.A. Open was the first tournament of the year, and they'd have all these little Gardena Valley Opens and Pomona Valley Open and things like that. And these guys would show up and kind of get tuned up playing in some of those little tournaments. Well, as a as a kind of a kid, a young pro, I would go there and I'd meet these guys. It was fantastic uh, to meet them. And uh, he he took a liking to me through basically Tommy Bolt was was my main mentor back in those days. He and Tommy ended up giving me a set of clubs that that I played through most of the early years I played on the on the uh, PGA Tour. Uh, Tommy was really great. Uh, I had some some good friends, but Tommy was my number one mentor out there. Uh, the uh, EJ Dutch Harrison, if you remember that name, the Arkansas Traveler. Absolutely. Okay, I'll tell you a story. This is a, this this almost fits into what your uh, what Joe was talking about in that last segment. You guys were talking about 150 yards, and this is a good story for everybody here that that uh, <clears throat> listens to the TV thing. And these guys are playing a cut here and a hook here and a high low and all this kind of stuff, it, which is great if you can do it. But uh, when it really gets down to that one important shot, like you're saying, you want to get on the green there somewhere. Well, anyway, uh, I was Dutch was always telling me that it would it'd be better for me to to uh, practice one shot, you know, instead of hitting all these multiple shots with uh, limited success. And I was having trouble. I wasn't a good. I couldn't hook the ball that well. 
And, and that was in an era when virtually everyone hit a draw, and I was one of the few guys that would hit a fade. Well, anyway, but so I was always trying to hit draws in there. <clears throat> so one day, we're, Dutch and I are at the range, and there was a medium-sized green out there, about 150 yards to the middle of the green. There wasn't any wind, and the, and the green was fairly soft, and it would hold a good shot. And Dutch, Dutch asked me, he says, you'll have a perfect lie. So what type of shot would you use, are you going to use to hit that green? And I told him, I said, well, Dutch, I can hit any shot I want. I'm a pro. I can do it. He said, okay, I'm going to stand six feet away from me with a loaded shotgun, shotgun aim right at your chest. If you miss the green, I'll pull the trigger. Now what shot are you going to hit into that green? <laughs> so I said, Mr. Dutch, I'll cut that SOB right in there. And he said, son, you're a fader. He says, now, don't you go try to hit any hook, any more hooks in there when it means something special. Lesson learned for me. <laughs> That's great. And Larry, so, you and, talked a minute ago, like life life changed for you when you turned 50 and, and you started Monday qualifying to play out on the senior tour. What happened for you that allowed you to become so much more successful on the senior tour than you were on the, the uh, regular tour? Well, you know, when I when I quit drinking in '79, that uh, I, you know, I I found out that uh, maybe I had better nerves than than I thought I had, you know, and uh, so I was a little more dedicated, and I got hardened for tournament play via the mini tours. I mean, I'm playing against kids, and and they're all some were just like Azinger. Azinger was just kind of getting started on the tour, you know, on the uh, mini tour thing right out of college at that point. And he, I, I saw him blossoming into some. So when I got on the, uh, uh, on the uh, senior tour, as it was called then, I was able to uh, kind of take all the experience I had of winning uh, into, into that tour. Now qualifying for those things was another story, but I had, for some reason, I had really uh, good success qualifying. I uh, uh, I made it. Uh, I didn't miss qualifying, as a matter of fact, uh, trying out there. I'm not so sure I'd hold that record now with as many uh, uh, as the, the competition is pretty difficult now. But uh, back then, it was easy uh, to if you shot in the 60s, 67 or something, you'd get in there. And the courses, I was very long then. And, and so the some of the uh, qualifying setups were pretty easy for me. And uh, although I did have the one disappointment when I went down to the tour school, you know, to, to avoid all this qualifying thing. I think I, we played down in uh, someplace called the Polo, something down in West Palm Beach or near in Palm Beach area somewhere. Anyway, and I played down there and I won by like 12 or 14 strokes in the first go around. So I thought, boy, this is really easy. Uh, uh, and uh, I went in my next thing and waltzed in there like the big star. And uh, don't you know, uh, my ego got to me and I, uh, I shot 83 the first round and pretty much <laughs> blew my way out of the whole thing. So on the, on to the qualifying thing, I went from there on in. So, uh, yeah, it, it, that was a shock, you know. Anyway, but uh, it wasn't until I, I got – I was making good finishes out there, and I, was, I, I wasn't I was used to seeing TV cameras and ropes and the galleries and all that kind of stuff. So I, 
I was inconsistent. Even though I qualified, I would be kind of up and down, up and down, up and down. And then I, I got paired with uh, Arnold Palmer at uh, the uh, U.S. Open. I think it was in Connecticut. We went there, and I had never, you know, it was like, it, it, you can't believe we had the huge, the biggest crowds I've seen on the on the uh, Champions Tour. And so the the first hole, I'm playing with him the last round, and we were pretty much out of any chance to win, but we we're going to make a decent check in, in the tournament. So uh, they cheered like crazy for Arnold on the tee. We hit down there, and so we're going down the fairway. They're cheering him all the way down the uh, – as we walked down the fairway, which I've never heard a rolling cheer like that. So we hit our second shots up. And Arnold, put it, Arnold put it on the green. I put it up there just short. And we here we are walking up, and there's more this rolling, and now they're cheering at the green. I'd never heard anything like that. So anyway, I'm up over the ball, and it kind of got me a little bit emotional, and I, I got just a hair misty-eyed about it. So here I am. There's Arnold Palmer standing up there near the up up there near the pin with his hands on his uh on his hips looking at me and my and I can't see the ball my eyes are and it's oh. like holy cow <laughs> so, I mean it's like a fella this is how a pro am guy feels, you know, when he's in playing with one of these guys. So anyway <laughs> so I'm finally it cleared up a little bit and you I could see him waiting and I chipped it up and I got a par and I got through the round, and I uh, I shot 71. Arnold shot a 73. And I remember telling my wife we had to rush from that uh, from that tournament and get up there to Syracuse. I think we were going to next, and uh, it, and I had to qualify the next morning at 9:30 in the morning. So you know we came in there, got in there about uh, midnight, and uh, so. Uh, and I told my wife on the way, I said, you know something? Don't worry about it anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I can play under the pressure. That was, if I can do what I did today, I'm ready to go. And I played really good from there on in on that tour. And finally, uh, finally won it in uh, Richmond. And, uh, when I won in Richmond, I qualified and, uh, got in there and won the tournament beating, uh, Playing, playing with Gary Player, who was the leader there, that uh, round and uh, final round, and and uh, hold a uh, hold a, about a thirty footer on the last hole to beat him by one, and so that was <laughs> that was quite a feeling. And we we still had, I think, there was a, a couple of players coming in that had a shot. I mean, Dale Douglas and Bob Charles, or somebody coming in uh, afterwards. And remember, you, you want to see how these guys have so much class, the great ones. You know, the great ones are special people. Anyway, so Gary sees my wife and I peeking around the corner. I didn't want to stand there staring at the guys. We just looking around there. The scores tent was right behind the green. And we're peeking around the scores tent looking to watch these guys on the green and see if they would make a putt, you know. Anyway, so Gary says, come on over here. He says, come on over here and watch these guys struggle. And we sat down on the, on the bleacher seats right nearby. And uh, he said, enjoy this. He said, you know, whether they make the putts or not, it's quite a feat you pulled today. And he said, he was, he was so nice to us. So 
and they missed and won the tournament. And it was just a marvelous thing. I mean, it was like, and I, at that point, I just said, you know, that that's how you have to be in competition. You, you give it your all like Gary did and, and it didn't work out. And uh, but you're still a good sport about the whole thing. Larry, one more before we let you go. And we got to talk about the, the 89 senior PGA championship that you won yeah. at PGA national. Now I, I got to get what, what do you remember about that week? Because you ended up being, as, as I look back, you were, you were paired with Mr. Palmer who had a four stroke lead going into the final round and, and Gary player yet again. And ultimately you had those two guys on the last hole putting out so they could get out of your way to win. What was that like? Well, that, that was in, uh, that was in, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, that was during, that was a tournament, uh, called the Pepsi senior challenge that uh, I played with them. Though Arnold really had a four shot lead going into the last round. And Gary and I, I think we're like eight under par and behind us. So Arnold was a dead cinch winner. Uh, and yeah, when we, I got to the, I got to the last hole, I shot 66 the last round and it pretty much dusted them. And, and, uh, the, uh, uh, I'm standing there next to my caddy and, and here they are, these two guys. I mean, I, you know, they're like statues. These are monuments to the game, you know, and I, I, t- I told my caddy, I says, holy smokes, this is like stuffing one over Wilt Chamberlain or striking out Babe ba- Ruth. I said, really? This is a, hitting a home run off Koufax. I said, you know, this is really something special. And they put it out, out of their way so I could go ahead and two putt and win the tournament. So, and then the, but the PGA was a really a special thing because that was that, that golf course, uh, that PGA champions golf course that they hold uh, on the Honda now. And it, it's a, a great course now. Uh, I thought it was tougher back in, in the day. I know when Larry Nelson won the PGA down there, he shot, it was, uh, I think 281, uh, was the winning score. And I think I was seven under also on that thing. So uh, the greens are probably a little easier to putt now than they were back in those days. That might be the biggest difference. Well, Larry, it's uh, it's been a huge thrill getting to spend some time with you. I got a thousand other questions I'd love to ask you. I hope you'll come back on the show and join me again sometime. But let our listeners know we met over social media. Let them know how they can follow you and see the great things that you're posting out there. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's my, my Twitter site is, if we, it's, it's a good site. I've got a bunch of nice people on there. Uh, I've, I've pretty much gotten rid of all of the wise guys and stuff like that that you find on Twitter. Uh, it's, uh, at Larry and then there's an underline and M-O-W-R-Y. And, uh, you'll find that to be, a a, a marvelous, uh, Twitter page. And, uh, and I also, uh, you know, would like to say that I'm, I'm now teaching down at the uh, Echelon Golf Club, which is one of the most beautiful golf courses in Georgia. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a great place to come. I'm not teaching all the time there, just part time. Uh, 82 years old, you know, it's, uh, and uh, I'm limited to how much I really want to spend on the uh, on the lesson tee. But uh, I enjoy it an awful lot and like to pass on some information that I've learned. And it's a great golf course uh, where, where the 
person, you know, you can pay a green fee. It's a semi-private club, but you can pay a green fee and, and uh, really get a, a solid uh, private club experience from that place. It's gorgeous. Well, well, Larry, like I say, it's it's been a huge honor having you as part of the show tonight. I hope you'll come back and share more of your stories and uh, insights with me because I've had a lot of fun and I'd really love to have you come back sometime. You got it, Chris. No problem at all. Take care, Larry. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you, Larry. That is Larry Mowry. Again, 1989 senior PGA champion, won that tournament by one stroke over Miller Barber and Al Guyberger, the king of the mini tours, over 100 wins, 106 wins out on the mini tours. And then uh, like all the great things that he achieved when he finally got out there and rolling on the senior tour. So really looking forward to having Larry back as part of the show. A lot of fun. He's a great guy. Really looking forward to having him back. All right, we've got our next guest, Scott White, hanging on the line. Going to get to Scott on the other side of this real quick station break. Here, PGA and LPGA legends, pros, top instructors, and media members from around the country sharing their stories, insights, and playing lessons every week right here on Next on the Tee. Take it away, Chris. And now back in making his fifth appearance with me here on the French Lake Resort guest line is the CEO of the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company, Scott White. Let me remind you a little bit about Scott's background. He managed the Ben Hogan business back when it was with Spalding in the late 1990s. Spalding dissolved in the early 2000s, and the Hogan and Top Flight brands were bought out by Callaway, and Scott moved out to Carlsbad, California to uh, handle their marketing efforts. 2007, he moved over to TaylorMade and ran their iron and wedge business for a few years, then transitioned to uh, True Temper Sports, where he ran their sales and marketing efforts out on the West Coast through 2014. Scott returned to run the Ben Hogan brand back in early 2016, and he successfully navigated them through bankruptcy and helped bring them back, uh, you know, now, again, one of the most iconic brands in the history of the game of golf. And uh, they are back out on tour. They are being played, their equipment being played by J.J. Henry and Mark Brooks. They've got a great line of irons that you hear me talk about every week here on Next on the Tee. And now they've got some exciting new news about a product line that uh, they had just launched yesterday. We'll talk about that with Scott here in a moment, but I'm excited he is back with me again here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Scott, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, my pleasure, Chris. Good to uh, good to be back with you. So, Scott, big announcement yesterday for those who haven't seen it yet online or on social media. Talk about what it is. Yeah, um, we just launched a line of forged putters yesterday. Um, we had been talking about uh, getting into new product categories for, for quite a while, and uh, this is the first entry into something other than irons and wedges for us, um, and so we're really excited. It's, um, it's a small product line. It's only four different models, but um, they're great putters, very traditional and, and uh, Hogan-esque, for lack of a better term, and, uh, you know, all of 24, 36 hours into the launch, we're, we're excited about the uh, – uh, about the um, response that we've gotten. So, uh, so, yeah, so far, so good. And Scott, talk about the four different models because they, you know, they are very classic looking, but uh, all seem outstanding. Talk about which four you've got available. Yeah, and, <clears throat> yeah. To cut to the chase, you know, we've got three blades. We've got a uh, a, a traditional plumber's neck blade, and then a Dale style putter, and then lastly, a more thin blade with a, a, a flowing neck. Uh, uh, is how it's been described to me a number of times, and then one mallet. So they're all black diamond metal finish, and um, for the time being, at least, all right-handed models. But, 
you know, again, the big difference is, you know, there's a lot of putters out there that look the same as, as these in, in many regards, but these are all forged. Um, unlike a lot of other premium putters that are out in the, in the retail market space and, and on tour for that matter. Um, these are forged and so they have a very different feel, uh, much more, we think much more consistent, uh, free from dead spots or hot spots on the face. They're CNC milled and, um, Again, that iconic Ben Hogan logo on the on the back. So uh, they're they're great looking in the bag, but they perform even better on the green. And as you talk about them being forged, Scott, talk about what the difference is between forged steel and cast steel. If you talk about no dead spots and no hot spots, talk about how it's more evened out across the face. Yeah. <clears throat> so I mean, there there somebody much smarter than I can go into the details on this, but you know the vast majority of golf clubs, putters, irons, um, wedges on the market today are 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 cast, investment cast, and um, you know I think we've talked about this in the past. It's a simple process, an expensive process, and a and a quick process where you you melt metal uh, and, and you pour it into a mold, and you know a couple hours later you've you've got a golf club head. You know, forging is uh, the old-fashioned way, and and we think the better way to make golf clubs. It's uh, a little bit more complicated. You heat up steel and you kind of pound it into place, and then there's a lot of finishing that goes on after afterwards. And you know, so these putters are are forged uh, like our irons and wedges. Um, Ten twenty carbon steel. They, um, you know, we we think that the big difference, and we've actually proven this out through a lot of a lot of testing we've done, is that you know, forging doesn't change the molecular structure of steel. And so you get a much more consistent, true face. And, you know, you'd be surprised. We've done a lot of a lot of measurements on cast clubs, uh, cast putters in particular. And, you know, even two millimeters, three millimeters away from uh, different spots on the face, you get very different hardness. Uh, we use a, a Rockwell hardness tester. And, you know, the difference in, in, in hardness is, is kind of astonishing. So, you know, for the player like me and, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners that have hit putts and they, you know, just think they're perfect dead center, right distance, and they come up uh, three inches short or they race by the hole by a few inches, you know, some of that may not be the, the, the fault of the player. It could be just the difference in the hardness of the face. And, you know, not, not everybody hits the, hits the, the putt in the center of the face. As a matter of fact, there's quite a bit of, of, uh, difference in, in, in distance from the center of the club head where people hit putts. And so if you've got a, a putter head that has just a little bit of, of hardness dif- dif- difference between one spot and another, it can really impact the, the putter pace and speed in a, in a pretty dramatic way. We were really surprised and taken aback when we did, when we did all of our testing, both in a laboratory and then on the, on the green itself. And Scott, you mentioned that the face of the putter is CNC milled. Talk about what that means. Yeah, that's really kind of a finishing step for us. Um, it uh, it really provides perfect flatness. I mean, when you when you CNC mill something, uh, especially in a straight line, it's uh, it's a robotic process, and there is no um, no deviation whatsoever from from perfect flatness. So, again, for for all of us and even tour pros that hit the ball um, a little bit off center uh, on a on a regular basis, it just provides you know, much more consistency. And, you know, you're not going to have 
a putt go offline because of the face of the putt. Could go offline for a number of different reasons, obviously including the the, the surface and the texture of the green, um, or the golf ball itself. But uh, the face of the of the putter isn't something you're going to be able to blame. Scott, I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about your equalizer wedges, which I absolutely love. Best wedges I've ever used, and and I love the new black matte finishes that you have on them now. Talk about the equalizer wedge and what you guys have done, you know, in that segment. Yeah, so we introduced the uh, the equalizer wedge line uh, back in uh, well, a little bit less than a year ago now, and uh, you know, as you said, Chris, they're they're really great wedges for for a lot of different players. They come in uh, even number lofts from 48 degrees to 62 degrees, so we've got you know a wide variety of, of gap wedges and sand wedges, lob wedges, and 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 pretty much for every you know anything for for anybody. Um, we recently uh, added the diamond black metal finish to those, the same finish that we're using on the putters, and uh, you know that was really due to to demand. I mean, we had launched this line last year. Again, we're sort of taken aback by the by the success of it. And, um, you know, people said, hey, we, we want something that doesn't glare as much. We want something that uh, provides a little bit more contrast with the golf ball. And so we put the diamond black metal finish on it. And, you know, again, it's it's been uh, it's been very well received. And, you know, I think now we're selling almost one to one between the traditional nickel chrome finish and, and the new uh, diamond black metal finish. But uh, you're right. They perform great. Um feel great obviously because they're forged and um you know again with the different loft options people are, are not buying these in in you know typically in single sticks they're buying them in in groups of three and you know round out their the short end of their bag with uh, with three wedges is, is what we're seeing more often than not and scott one of the great things for those who haven't you know joined us before when we've talked about the equalizer wedge one of the great things that makes it such a, a wonderful performing wedge is the unique bounce, the V-sole design that you guys have. Talk about what that is for those who haven't heard it before. Yeah, V-sole's been around for a while uh, in different ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, we've modified the original design a number of times, but um, you know, to, to simplify it, it's a it's a kind of a unique geometry on the sole. Uh, it's a it's a steep leading edge and a uh, much softer trailing edge. And, uh, you know, that does a lot of, a uh, number of different things. Um, you know, first and foremost, it provides for, you know, really good turf interaction. It's easy to get through anything from a, you know, perfect lie in the middle of a fairway to, you know, a pretty rough, a pretty tough rough. And so, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a great performing wedge in, in, in really almost any condition. Um, the other thing it does is it provides you to lay open or close down the wedge very easily. Yeah, it's easy to manipulate the club head. Um, whereas if you don't have a, uh, any bounce on the, on the leading edge, it's very hard to turn the club, manipulate it or, or, you know, do anything otherwise that would allow you to hit the kind of shot that, uh, you know, that's required, um, you know, from a hundred yards in. So it's, um, you know, again, VSOL is a, a trademark of the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. Some other, you know, companies use similar type designs because the technology has been around for a while. But uh, we think we've perfected it and, uh, you know, have had a long history with it. So we're, we're really, uh, really proud of it. And it's something that we use not only in our wedges, but in our irons as well. Scott, just a couple more before we let you go. And uh, for those of us that have loved the uh, Ben Hogan brand, 
for many years, going all the way back to, you know, from when I, I first started playing the game back in the 70s and 80s. You've got some great other things that people may not know about, and those are some great accessories that are available with the, with the Ben Hogan logo on them. Talk about what people can find when they go online to BenHoganGolf.com. Yeah, well, you know, the biggest thing, Chris, is that we just do business differently than than really any other major golf brand. We sell exclusively online, factory direct, workshop direct, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, the only way to really see and, and feel and experience our golf equipment is is by going to BenHoganGolf.com. And, you know, once you get there, obviously, you'll be able to learn about all of our irons and wedges and, and now putters as well. But we've got some, you know, some programs that make it really easy for people to you know, to test and to try and to uh, and, and to buy, you know, golf clubs. Um, you know, we cut out the middleman. There's no retail markup. So our prices are extremely attractive when compared to, uh, you know, other golf equipment manufacturers that sell through traditional retail. But we've got a demo program, you know, for 20 bucks, we'll send you out some clubs. You can try them for two weeks at your leisure on your golf course or at, at your range. We've got a trade up program. You know, once you buy a set of new clubs, if you don't want to have your old set, you know, kind of collecting dust in your front closet or garage, you know, send them into us and we'll give you, you know, fair market value for them and, and, uh, you know, help you defray the cost of the new clubs. Um, there's financing, there's, uh, you know, as always, because we make every club by hand one at a time, there's, you know, no charge for customization. You know, steel and graphite shafts are exactly the same price. You can change loft and lie and length and get the grip size that you want. Um, so it's really a it's really a unique experience. Uh, you know, it's taken a little bit of time for people to get used to that. And but you know, as more people become accustomed to buying stuff on Amazon or <laughs> buying Tesla cars online or other uh, you know big ticket items, this is uh, you know really we think becoming the norm. And so it's a it's something that I think everybody should uh, at least take a look at before they go out and talk to a, a traditional retailer and and, uh, and and buy golf clubs, what we think is kind of the old-fashioned way. Scott, you've got some very cool Ben Hogan head covers that I've seen out on some of the social media posts, particularly out on, on Instagram that uh, I'm dying to get my hands on. But are, are you foreshadowing anything? What's, what's, uh, what else might be coming down the pike? You know, Chris, um, I could tell you that, but uh, then I, 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 I'd probably have to uh, – kill you um there's some other things coming i would just uh i just urge you to keep an eye on us and uh you know like i said we we introduced uh, the equalizer black wedges a few weeks ago we just brought out the putters uh yesterday and um i would just tell you that we're not done there's uh some other things coming that uh we're, we're uh think are very worthy of of mr hogan's name and we're really excited about so uh, i think uh i think your listeners will be excited about too uh, I know I am, and I'm looking forward to hearing all about it. So, Scott, I can't thank you enough for coming back on the show and talking about the new line of putters. Hopefully we uh, get the opportunity to hear what else is new and exciting on the horizon very soon. It's always great stuff. And like I say, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Ben Hogan fan. I love the, the PTX irons. I, you know, I also really enjoy the edge irons and uh, now uh, with the equalizer wedges as well. So looking forward to getting my hands on a couple of the putters and checking those out too, because everything about the brand that you've done and you and your team have done has absolutely been outstanding. So I'm sure the putters are going to be equally as outstanding as well. Great. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, let's make sure we stay close over the next uh, few weeks and um, we'll, I'm sure we'll have some other things to talk about. There you go. 
Scott, thank you so much. Take care. All the best to you and your family. Looking forward to catching up with you again, like, like you just said, in a couple of weeks. Great. Thanks again, Chris. Have a good night. You do the same, Scott. Take care. That is Scott White. He is the CEO of the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company and uh, the putters. I'm telling you, folks, go online, BenHoganGolf.com and check them out. They look absolutely outstanding. And like he, like uh, Scott said, you can customize them however you want, right? What length do you like? What lie do you like? Uh, what grip do you like for those putters as well? So, And if they've got something else coming back, coming out in a couple of weeks, boy, I can't wait to hear what that is. So looking forward to having Scott back on the show again real soon. All right, folks, time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. I want to thank my guests, Bobby Nichols, Joe Connerton, Larry Mowry, and Scott White for joining me tonight. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Put your comments in there. We really appreciate it. Give us a like while you're there as well. Please check out our sister show on the football side, Thursday Night Tailgate with me and my co-host Bob Lazari and our announcer, Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern time right here on Blog Talk Radio. And that show like this one also available as a free podcast on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom. We are all over the net. So any place that uh, you go to choose to listen to podcasts, you'll probably find Thursday Night Tailgate and Next on the T as well. And on Thursday Night Tailgate, we're joined every week by five NFL legends who come on and share stories from their playing days as well as insights into what's going on around the league now. And then we highlight two players doing great things out there in their communities in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. Check out that show online at ThursdayNightTailgate.com. This show, NextOnTheT.net. Thank you again for choosing to listen to the show tonight. We know you got a lot of podcasts out there that uh, you have available to you. We really appreciate the fact that you are making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. on the G with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Tuesday to hear more stories about the game we love from people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about 